if you just ask a client, do you have sex with men or women or both? Um, that's a very, uh, a very basic understanding of sex and gender. And a very, you're going to get very limited answers and a very skewed data. Hi, I'm Dr. Reese, and welcome to Pride in Primary Care, a podcast for healthcare professionals about LGBTI health. This episode is all about taking a sexual health history. Regardless of your sexuality or gender, sexual health is important for all people, but sometimes as health professionals, we can find the topic a bit awkward. Now there's one question I remember most from my medical education in taking a sexual history. Do you have sex with men, women, or both? Well, this episode is going to explore how that might not be the best starting point. Uh, my name is Clinton. I'm a practice nurse um, at a sexual health clinic in Brisbane. Um, my main role would be sexual health assessments and treatments, um, primarily dealing with a lot of LGBTI community. Um, and our bread and butter would be uh, PrEP and HIV management. Nice one. So you see a lot of people in the LGBTI community and talk a lot about sexual health. Why do you think it's important that doctors, nurses, students and everyone is confident with both of those topics? Um, so those topics are quite important, um, especially in a community where a lot of services are targeted towards heterosexual um, demographics. So in that, a lot of our language use and a lot of our assumptions all come derived from a sort of heteronormative society where it's expected that a, a man uh, would have sex with a woman um, and those who are married would never would never cheat or especially with uh, someone of the same gender. Um, so I think it's very important to have knowledge around LGBTI issues and language and behaviours and especially risk factors. That way we're asking the right questions and getting the right answers and giving the right education that's relevant to each client um, to make good decisions. Otherwise you're trying to jam LGBTI people into a, like a heterosexual hole and it doesn't quite work well. So it has to be relative and has to be um, current as well. Um, it just, it needs to be understood. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I, I love how you mentioned jamming in holes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's great. So I guess a lot of patients and people would be coming to you specifically for sexual health and talking about STIs or prevention or screening if someone's not coming to you for that, if they're coming for other things and you want to bring up the topic of sexual health, how do you kind of introduce that to patients? Um, surprisingly, uh, a lot of it will come from um, the type of clinic we're at and the type of service they're after. Um, so for our clinic, it's LGBTI clinic. There's a very bright, colourful uh, rainbow waiting room. There's a lot of flags, a lot of um, advocacy for um, minority groups and transgender and all those populations. Um but if you were operating in a um, just like a suburban GP clinic, it's you have to be confident. You have to push through and sort of pick up any flags the patient might be giving you around uh, any relationship breaks downs or increase in substance use, um, any symptoms they might have been experiencing, any past history of uh, maybe like reckless behaviour or promiscuity and those sort of things. Um, but it would just be trying to normalize it in your language. So I would approach it and say, you know, sexual health is an important part of our healthcare or um, and leading through contraceptive measures or um, to any sexual performance issues and those sort of topics that might be harder to talk with the clients. Um, 
because the main thing to remember is the clients won't won't bring up the issues to you, especially if it's of like a taboo and very sensitive nature. So you have to be the advocate and you have to be confident and speak for them and broach these sort of tough topics. Yeah, that's so true. I think a lot of patients might have it in the back of their head that they really want to talk about it, but they don't know how to start that conversation. So if we can help them start it, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah, and I find a lot of patients, um, and rightfully so, it's not their job to know what is a risk factor and what's not and what's relevant and what's not. That's up to the clinician. And the clinician can only do their job when they ask the right questions. And sometimes we have to ask really personal questions and it might challenge our own stigmas and beliefs and sort of our own taboo nature. But as a clinician, you have to advocate for those patients. So you have to step up and be confident and just push through and ask. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think sometimes when I want to bring it up and I'm not sure how, I, I bring it back to my special interests. I say like, look, I really love talking about sexual health. I know that's not why you came in today, but it's something that we can talk about if you want to you know, look into sexual health or STI prevention and that sort of stuff. Exactly. No. Perfect. So once you've opened the door and your patient is ready to talk about sexual health and, and, and what comes with that, how do you find out more about your patient's sexuality or, or who your patient is having sex with? Um, well, despite the obvious avenues of uh, intake forms, if there's any inkling on there or indication on there what their preference may be, um, I sort of will use the performer and the baseline demographic data we need to sort of lead in um, where it might mention the sexual preference, um, sexuality of the patient. Um, Roughly so, if patients don't want to disclose, that's completely up to them. Um, But I do try and educate and sort of come from the point of view of saying why we need to know this information and how that would relate and translate into better healthcare and better outcomes and more tailored outcomes. Um, But for me, it's about if you just ask a client, do you have sex with men or women or both? Um, that's a very, uh, a very basic understanding of sex and gender and a very, you're going to get very limited answers and a very skewed data. So if you ask a person, do you have sex with a man? Cause sex and gender are completely different things. So someone may identify as a man. So a trans male, um, they may aesthetically not look masculine, but they would identify as a male. And if a person saying they're having sex with a man, the anatomy may not correlate with the assumptions the practitioner is making. So For me, I have to be quite specific, and some people think it and hear it as a bit odd, um, but I literally say, do you have sex with other people? Go, yes, no, if it's yes. Do any of those people have a penis, or do any of those people have a vagina or uterus? Um, And that's it throws some people off, but and I do have to explain myself to people who aren't used to that terminology because I only really care about the anatomy that we're involving with because that's where risk factors and transmissions and all the environments come from. It's not so much the label. So to denote and negate that ambiguity, I like to ask specifically, like, did any of them have a penis? And did any of them have a vagina? Um, and in the sexual acts, you say, was there any vaginal sex? Was there any anal sex? Was it penetrative? Was it oral sex? Was it receptive, giving? Um, all those sort of things. You have to be almost really like base level of um, communication to get the clarity you need. Otherwise, it's too ambiguous, especially now with a big spotlight um, and awareness growing around pronouns and language use and gender and sexuality, um, where everyone's on different levels of understanding and different levels of use. So you can't, you won't get a uniform, uniform answer. So you're better off just being really basic with your questions. That's so true. I think starting off by saying men, women, or both just completely ignores gender. 
um, and, and gender diversity. Um, so I like how you, you've taken the approach of going even more specific, just forgetting gender and only thinking about anatomy, which is a weird thing to think about asking people, but uh, uh, explaining it and getting down to the basics of, hey, this is why we ask this, um, uh, what it comes down to is sexual health and STI protection. That's um, uh, that's much, much smarter. Yeah, it's, it's super weird. And I always get a lot of weird reactions, but... Once you explain why, they kind of understand and they kind of, I think, appreciate it a bit more because it shows that I'm sort of understanding the communities we serve and the difference and variance in people's identities and stuff. So, uh, And I think, if anything, that builds really good rapport because they instantly know and trust that I'm not going to assume anything, I don't judge anything, and I don't have any of my own stigma or taboo kicking into the conversation. So I think it's a good start. That's good. And another one that I uh, have found useful, at least starting the conversation as well, is um, just asking the question without gender attached to it, you know, what type of people do you have sex with? And then getting down into the nitty gritty of, you know, what genitalia and, and is going where. Um, now, you touched on practices there as well, what types of sex people are having. Um, so, yeah, how do you ask for that specifically? Um, it gets a little bit tricky, um, if you're dealing with, um, like gay men or straight men or gay women, straight women, or, um, a simple version like that, um, it's only a sort of a select, a select repertoire of things they can do. So it's kind of a bit easier just to go rattle off the list. So for me, I just start with the easier things that I find people are more willing to disclose. Um, so I say, was there any, um, oral sex? Was there any sharing of toys, that sort of stuff? Um, and I, sometimes you get the mutual masturbations and those sort of lower risk activities. And I say, oh, that's fine. That's, you know, that's not a risk. Move on. Uh, and then we get into the specifics of any penetrative sex. And so I try and go broad and get more specific depending on what their answers and even their behaviors are. So I fully know that I never get 100% honesty every consult. That's completely fine. That's, that's up to the patient. That's fine. Um, but I do believe when I ask from that perspective of just being very specific and going penetrative sex, were you uh, receptive, assertive, whatever it is, you get a much better response and sort of you walk with them through those awkward answers because it's not nice. It's never easy to rattle off things you've been because they fully feel like they've got to be judged. Um, so I try and make it very specific and as clinical as I can without being cold and um, too harsh, but just so it makes it more of a easier thing to talk about. But, um, but at the same token, I find also using the language of different communities. Um, so for gay men, I'll say top, bottom or verse. Um, and a lot of people know that. If they don't understand that, then I break down and go, you know, were you an assertive partner, receptive partner or both? Um, but using language is definitely very conducive to a good, um, like a, a completely honest assessment. Um, so once you start talking their language and they relate better and they'll just disclose more. Because um, they're not specifically saying penetrative and insertion and all these sort of harsh clinical words. It's more easy, like they're talking to a friend. So I finally get a better response out of that. But um, but definitely use your language. Um, go broad, start broad, go specific. And just it'll be guided by the answers easily. Um, but definitely, again, when you talk about the different acts you're doing, um, for our non-binary and gender diverse populations, the language use around... Um, anatomy is very, very important uh, and also very misleading at times. Um, I've had one trans male 
who was new to our clinic and aesthetically was very masculine um, and there wasn't a documented history of them being a transgender male. Um, so when he said um, he had sex with a, a cis woman um, where he effed her <laughs> with his penis, um, I assumed he had a penis anatomy. Um, and then when we got closer and talked more, I realized he referred to his clitoris as a penis. So it was a very <laughs> misleading conversation. So, um, but language is so important. So when I, when I refer to trans men, um, you don't use feminizing anatomy terms like vagina. Um, it's hard to get your head around, but it took me a while to get used to it. As a clinician, we want to be using the correct terminology and being professional and using terms like front hole um, and things like that to refer to the vagina of a trans male uh, is much more accepted uh, because it's not a feminizing reference. Um, it's just a hole at the front that a man could have. Um, so you really have to understand from their point of view, um, using feminizing terms and referring to the anatomy, which has innate connotations to being the opposite gender or they were assigned with at birth, um, is a bit damaging, can be dysphoric at times. So you really have to just work with the clients. Um, some are completely fine and don't doesn't bother them at all and they just get straight in blunt answers. Uh, but others you definitely have to be more considerate with them. It's just part of the clinician. A good clinician will just always work best with them, use the terms they need, um, and just understand each patient. But you have to just take your time. That's right. I think, um, you know, we talk about the idea of taking a history as if we're extracting it from the patient. Um, but what, what you kind of uh, are talking about there is, you know, facilitating them giving you the information. Um, and the terminology and language that we use is really important so that we, A, know what we're referring to, and B, don't offend the patient. So, you know, if they refer uh, to something in, in one word, ask them specifically about what that means so then you can document that. But in your conversation, use their language so that you know that uh, they understand what you're talking about. Completely. That's it. They're not, they won't expect you to be fluent in their language straight off the bat either. Um, I find a lot of the gender diverse and trans community are very forgiving because they understand society is lagging and like it always is. Um, with understanding pronouns and understanding the significance it has on their mental health. And obviously then it'll translate into their disclosure and how honest they are and how engaged they are with service. So you don't have to be amazing at it right off the bat. You just have to show that you're considerate. And the easiest way to show that is just ask them what language they want to use. It seems a bit redundant, but it's such a big tool to use and it's so empowering for them and yourself just to its instant relatability where they just say, use these pronouns, I call it front hole, you know, I'm, I'm a man, I'm a bloke, I'm a woman, I'm whatever it is. Um, you just instantly connect. And just to show that you're trying is huge. So I think we can't beat ourselves up if we slip up sometimes. I've definitely slipped up and dead named someone because I've looked at the chart in the wrong area and didn't look off their nickname. I looked off their assignment of birth name. Um, but they're forgiving. You just apologize, you move on. It's no difference to putting your foot in your mouth in a normal conversation. You just... You stuff up, you move on, don't make it something it's not. But. Hell yeah. Now, Clinton, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned um, briefly. Uh, in med school, we, when talking about sexual health, when uh, talking about taking a sexual history, toys were definitely not mentioned. Um, so how do you talk to patients about toys? Um, toys, I come from the point of view of 
Um, I always start my consults with going, I'm going to ask some very personal questions. I say, if at any time you're not comfortable answering, you do not have to answer it. I say, but the reason I'm asking is awkward stratification. I need to know what activities you've been up to. And that denotes to me what education is needed, what testing is needed and possible treatments. Um, when you explain your rationale for your questions like that, it's you're more forgiven to ask these sort of questions like what toys do you use. Um, but I just, you deliver it in a normalized, confident way and just go any other risk factors. So I'm talking about intravenous drug use, any tattoos done unprofessionally, any incarceration periods, and then you drop it. Go Any toys shared um, between you and other partners at the same time or without protection on them. And um, if you just drop it into normal conversation, it normalizes it because it should be normalized. Um, if I do get awkward stares about why they want to know what toys, why I want to know what the toys are using, which I guess some could very be questionable. They've never been asked before. Um, I do just simply say, look, there's no difference in terms of transmission risk um, if someone had a penis and penetrated you as opposed to using a toy and then penetrating you. I said the delivery mechanism is the same. So whether it's artificial or not, the risk is still there. Um, and people understand that. But I find the most confusion will come from the fact that no one's ever asked them those sort of risk factors before, um, which is unfortunate, but uh, understandable, I think. Because um, most people get sexual health checks through GPs. GPs have so much to consider and so much to look at, and they can only focus on so much in a 15-minute consult um, that it won't be as in-depth as it will like like for I and my work at a sexual health clinic. So uh, it's just at our forefront. So I understand that that happens, but um, delivery is, is easier if you're just confident and explain why. Um, but toy, yeah, toy sharing and transfer um, is very important to pick up. Absolutely. And I think these questions, once you ask them a couple of times, you find the language that works for you as well. So bringing up toys, talking about sharing toys or, or how do you clean toys, um, you ask it once and it feels weird, but then when you get an answer back and you're like, oh God, this changed my management. Now I do have to uh, screen for this. You realize the importance of it. And so it makes it easier every other time around. Definitely. Yeah. And people will then come to expect it, um, which then just makes your job so much easier. It gets less and less awkward as time goes on um, for you and the patient. So we just have to just suck it up, ask those questions, but explain why. Um, and everyone's better for it. Totally. Now we've talked about who they're having sex with. We've talked about how they're having sex. Um, I also want to know about sort of how we're protecting ourselves. So um, uh, things like uh, protecting ourselves against STIs or contraception. How do you bring that up with patients? Uh, I always start off with um, like first assessing their risks involved. Um, so risks come from not just physical activity, but obviously their thoughts and approach towards sex and what sex means for them. Some people use sex as an escape. Um, and in that we'll use a lot of chem sex, um, reckless behaviors, um, complete lack of strategies for self-preservation. So they'll go to sex on premises venues, have multiple casual partners, never use condoms. They'll have sex in groups, um, where there's no contact tracing ability. Everyone's, there's a lot of anonymity there. Um, they may have the high use of chem sex and drugs while they're under the influence and make decisions that they may not have made without, well, when was, when sober, um, so once I figure out the risks involved, um, that sort of guides very easily where I need to go with prevention methods, education. Um, so there's a lot of prevention methods out there. So most people have heard of PEP, the post-exposure after incidents. Um, there's PrEP as well, which is a big mainstay in sort of like cultural acceptance now. 
Um, so that's definitely on the increase, which is great. Um, there's also good old-fashioned condoms that everyone seems to forget about just in the background, sitting by themselves. <laughs> it's a really good method that no one sort of, like, ever just ignores now for some reason. But, um, but definitely there's, um, you know, limiting other strategies, like limiting your casual partners, um, better negotiation of sex practice with your partner and getting on testing schedules. Um, so there's other strategies you can do as well, but um, definitely education is really important. Because I think people won't understand the significance of rationales of strategies if they don't understand what it means to them and what it's doing for them. So if you make it relatable um, and put it in the terms they use, I find people adopt it way more and they give it more time to listen rather than going, yep, 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 cool, and just going back to what they were doing. So um, that's where tools like your motivational interviewing will kick in, which I've done a lot with our LGBTI community. Uh, We sort of just set a goal and just a very small goal, and that might be, um, having sex with the same person over again rather than another new casual partner or using condoms 10% more of the time or considering prep more. Um, just any goals you can do to make it a little bit better. So I always put it akin to like a cigarette smoker smoking one less cigarette a day. doesn't seem like much, but that's a huge step forward. And that means there's willingness to grow and then you just ride that wave until eventually they quit. So it's a really good technique to have um, with our community. And I think you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people don't want to make wrong decisions and they don't want to be high risk and they want to do what's right, um, despite how their actions may show. Um, but I think people just lack knowledge. Um, and unfortunately, that's where we come in with clinicians. We have to educate our patients in a relatable way and it's up to date um, and free of any bias is another issue I find. A lot of people get told issues from clinicians and strategies from clinicians around um, if you have anal sex, you'll you know, get HIV, you shouldn't have sex without any condoms ever. And if you're married, you know, you shouldn't have sex at all casually and just all these own biases that sort of project and translate into their language and consultation, which unfortunately is not what's best for the patient, it's what's best for the clinician. And that's an awful approach to have. Um, so education is probably my biggest tool uh, for prevention and keeping people safe. Uh, but again, it's how you use it as to how effective it is. Absolutely. Now, Clinton, I really want to say you actually made me feel a little bit sad for condoms then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> got a little bit teary for a second. Like wallflower in the in the party. Just <laughs> oh no! But I, I think your non-judgmental approach is so important. When we talk to patients about smoking or alcohol, you know, if they say a big amount, we don't sit there and go, "What? Oh." oh, wow, that's a lot, holy moly. And in the same way, if someone's not using condoms and putting themselves at higher risk of things, in the same way, we can't react badly to that. We need to hear them and, and you know, teach them and, and, and foster that growth. And I love the idea of using motivational interviewing for that. It's something that, I don't know, I might be doing accidentally, but um, actually putting that into practice, that can really reduce people's risk. Super, super empowerment tool. I love motivation and doing, but I love it so seamlessly where people don't know what's happening. You can just keep setting little goals and have you thought about this? And maybe next time we can look at this, the next consultation, you know, let's see if this works. Um, but definitely a collaborative approach and demonstrating that you're working with them because um, people don't come for our judgment um, or our dictation. They come for help. So help isn't bias help is unconditional, non-judgmental. There's times I'm definitely can be shocked by what some people have done, but I never show that. But internally, it can be very confronting. Um, but for me, I just see that as 
a flag for intervention and go, right, how can I fix this, whether it's education, uh, strategy, an interventional tool, engagement of more services, different service provision, whatever it is, that's my job as a clinician to flag that and work on it. But you have to work with the patient. You cannot set these predetermined lanes for them to go down. You have to make it tailored for them. Uh, and that just comes from listening and non-judgment. Yeah, that's really good. I think it's a really good way of turning what you know could be a tick and flick two, three-minute appointment of going, yes, here's your pathology form, see you later, to actually caring and showing our patients that, you know, when we say LGBTI friendly, we mean that we really care about them and really want to make sure that we're helping them with their sexual health. Completely. Yeah, LGBTI friendly is a subjective word. Uh, and I think especially in today's society where language doesn't really have as much meaning as it did back in the day, uh, I think it's a word that's and a phrase that's thrown around a lot um, and has very different meanings on different consultations, different clinicians. So to me, LGBTI friendly is understanding the population, understanding their language, understanding their behavior and culture, um, not judging it, whether they identify themselves as that or not, that's irrelevant. It's just understanding what risk factors there are, what the health concerns are in that population um, and knowing how to work with them to make a healthier life. But that's that's a huge difference to just seeing gay guys, as some people put us LGBTI friendly. It's not, it's completely different realms. Awesome, Clinton. Thank you so much for your time. You are a legend for the LGBTI community and for the healthcare community as well. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, we'll be sure to get you back again. Lovely. It'll be amazing. Thank you. Here's my three take-home messages for today. Number one, start the conversation. Let your LGBTI patients know that you care about their sexual health. So if they want to talk to you about it, you're open anytime. Number two, keep your first questions open. Rather than asking if people have sex with men, women, or both, start with, what are the genders of the people you have sex with? Number three, stay judgment-free. It's really important to ask what types of sex people have, as well as whether they use condoms or other forms of protection. The way we can put patients at ease is by not reacting if we're shocked by anything. You can check out the show notes for an awesome sexual history-taking flow sheet that answers all the other questions that you might have. Thanks for listening to Pride in Primary Care and taking the time to learn a little bit more about LGBTI health. You can stay up to date about future episodes or get in touch via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter using the handle Pride in PC. And if you know a health practitioner who might like this podcast, spread the word. Thank you.